Next Chapter Podcasts. Hey y'all, I'm Otis Pickett, the university historian at Clemson University and a man of faith based here in Clemson, South Carolina. Welcome to Purpose That Prevails, a podcast about faith, religion, and walking a faith-based life. On the show, we're going to be joined by both believers and scholars, leaders in the fields of education, history, and religion. My hope is that you find these conversations inspiring, and maybe you and I will even learn a thing or two along the way. Before I introduce my guest for this week's episode, I'd ask that you subscribe, rate, and even review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you've stumbled upon the show. Please also tell your friends, family, and pastors about it as we love to get support and get the word out. Okay, now to my guest for this week. My guests today are Dr. Vernon Burton and Dr. Rhonda Thomas, two of my esteemed colleagues here at Clemson University. Vernon Burton is considered to be one of the most distinguished historians of American history living today, especially when it comes to the history of the American South. The Matthew J. Perry Distinguished Chair at History and Professor of Pan-African Studies, Sociology, and Anthropology at Clemson University. Vernon has been a pioneer among white Southern Christians advocating for ending systemic racism in America and has been a leader in creating awareness about how African Americans were unfairly treated by the American Supreme Court. Vernon's work as the director of the Clemson Cyber Institute from 2010 to 2016 has been monumental in establishing a digital history collection at the university. Vernon is also an accomplished author who's written more than 20 books, including the award-winning Age of Lincoln in 2007, and is recognized as an authority on race relations. He's even called upon as to be an expert witness in discrimination and voting rights cases throughout the United States. Dr. Rhonda Robinson Thomas is the Calhoun Lemon Professor of Literature at Clemson University, where she teaches American literature, including the history and works of African-American authors. Rhonda is also a distinguished author and coordinator for Clemson University's Woodland Cemetery, an African-American burial ground historic preservation project. Her book and research, Call My Name, which brought to light the significant contributions of African Americans in the building and development of Clemson University from its very origins, has revolutionized the way that history is now taught at the university. In today's show, we'd like for our audience to hear from these two distinguished scholars as they tell their stories and talk about the importance of the study of history and critical research in presenting truth to a public that is both honest and accurate. Welcome to Purpose That Prevails with uh, Otis Pickett. And today we have the awesome guests, Dr. Rhonda Thomas and Dr. Vernon Burton. And uh, I just want to say as a a personal aside that when I was um, looking to come to Clemson, uh, it was really to work with these two individuals because of how much I admire you both personally and how much I admire your work and your scholarship so I just want to say what a great honor it is to be your colleague at Clemson, and thank you so much for being here today and just for being on this podcast. Thank you, Otis, and Clemson is so fortunate that you joined us. We're very, very proud of the great work you're doing in leading us forward. Yeah, I second that. Uh, we are pleased to be here and to also have the opportunity to work with you here at Clemson. Oh, well, thank y'all. We're trying to, as as professors and as scholars, we can get into the nitty gritty on literature and history and all that pretty quick. But I want our guests to sort of just get a sense of who you are and things you like to do outside of your profession. So are there things y'all like to do personally or trips you like to take or fun things you like to do so we can just get to know you a little bit? Rhonda, you want to start us? Sure. Um, I love to travel. So my husband and I like to take trips within the United States as well as abroad. So some of my favorite places are Singapore. And I know that's a little weird. Um, William, my husband, actually got interested in Singapore. And we've taken the um, direct flight from New York to Singapore, Mm. (laughs) which is almost 20 hours. Um, We also went down to Sydney, Australia, uh, on a very similar flight that was almost as long. So, but getting there and exploring other cultures and um, 
you know, seeing things that I've only seen pictures of, like the um, Opera House and the Sydney Opera House is, is worth mm. every picture that you've seen to stand in the Opera House. Um, I, I just love to travel. Uh, I also am a vegan, so I love experimenting with vegan cooking, uh, baking, you know, tofu, you know, um, any kind of vegetable. I'm trying to be plant-based right now, so I'm trying to uh, make everything that I eat from scratch. Um, so, <laughs> so it's been quite an adventure. Um, yeah, quite an adventure. And um, I love writing. Uh, I teach African-American literature, but I also love to dabble uh, in writing myself and uh, mm. also sewing. So I sew mm. clothing and I like quilting. Um, so, you know, that's kind of what I do. Traveling, cooking and sewing would be three of the things that I love to do when I have time outside of, of my work at Clemson. Awesome. Vernon? Well, I, uh, I think we have a large family, a lot of grandchildren. I spend a lot of time with them. And that's probably most of our traveling. It's not uh, work-related, and it is a, a lot of fun. Uh, I like uh, a little different than Rhonda. I don't like writing, but I love being read. So I have to, uh, I have to write to be read, and uh, I think we'll get there. But I think the topics both Rhonda and I deal with are so critical, so important now, so more than ever, and particularly for our democracy. I love playing tennis. I like to garden. Uh, I actually really uh, used to love fishing and still do, but I spend most of my time with grandkids fishing with them. It's not quite the same thing, but it's more fun in the in the long run, even if we aren't catching eight and ten pound bass, uh, we're having fun, and that's the main main thing. I also like walking with friends, uh, mm -hmm. and that's fun. And one of my funnest walks was the uh, the walk that uh, Rhonda sponsored here to uh, to walk the call me call my name walk uh, first one ever, and that was a lot of fun. Walking with friends reminded me. That's great. It's just so great for our audience. Like sometimes I think scholars, we need, it's good for us to be humanized and, and for folks to hear that we're people and like to do regular things. And <laughs> we love to write and research, but we also love all kinds of other things. So thank you for that. And I kind of just wanted to get us started today. You know, the podcast we're about, we're, we're talking about how communities of faith can kind of move forward and thinking about a number of complex issues facing our society today. So my my brothers and sisters in, in my church in Mississippi would say, it's testimony time. Can you share a little bit about your testimony, a little bit about your personal journey in, in faith? Vernon, you want to get us started? Sure. I, um, I've often been jealous of someone like C.S. Lewis who came to their faith and his case like mine, Christianity from outside. But I grew up uh, with my mother, who was an extraordinary, uh, you might can tell I'm the biggest mother boy ever lived, still am, <laughs> even though I lost her in 2001. Uh, but she modeled for me what Christianity is, both in her own way she did her life and what she stood up for in principles and also even has come to affect my work. She taught me, which was unusual. I grew up uh, in the Jim Crow South. Uh, my dad died when I was seven, so it was just my mother and I. And in fact, he died in 1954, uh, right after, not that long after Brown v. Board, uh, which supposedly uh, ended at least legal segregation. Of course, we've never had integration, so we can't quite compare it, but it got rid of some of the worst vestiges of what segregation was. And uh, that really affected me. And over the years, uh, it was growing. I grew up in the church. Literally, that was the focus. Uh, I also had uh, a very good black friend whose family, I like to say that the only thing that separated us in the segregated South was an unsegregated cow pasture. And mm -hmm. uh, we grew up together. We literally, I did not realize how controversial it was, but I slept at his home in the same bed. He slept at my home in the same bed. We ate at the same tables and 
To give an example, my mother got in trouble because the three of us were riding the front seat together. My mother, and I always called him brother, Willie Willis, who's it's been fun. He has moved back to 96 as well. It's interesting oh, wow. how the South calls back uh, mm. to people. And we might can talk about that, that later, uh, but that was very influential on me. I went to Furman. Uh, I wanted to be a minister. That had been my plans. I had opportunities to go to graduate schools and uh, uh, law schools and medical schools, and uh, I think my religion professors were trying to save Christianity from me because they all insisted I should go instead to graduate school and said you could always come back and go to the seminary. But once there, I discovered that uh, you can be a witness in all sorts of roles and places and that if you try to follow your faith and follow God, that God will honor what you're doing, at least no matter where you are. Uh, so I can go on and on on this, Otis, but it, it has been uh, it has been Keep a all that central, in mind. central part of my life, and yeah. it reflects, I hope, in my work. Uh, yeah. And I become more conscious of that in the topics I write about. The last book I wrote about, I wrote about uh, Justice for Race in the Supreme Court, for example. My model was, in fact, the prophetic tradition that I saw in the Old Testament, the New Testament, Dr. Benjamin E. Mays, Martin Luther King Jr., and many others as I was trying to use history uh, in a way to make people aware of how we got to where we are and some of the issues we deal with. Mm. Thank you, Vernon. Keep all those things in mind. I mean, this is going to be interwoven throughout our conversation, so we, we don't have to put an end to it. This this will just be an ongoing discussion, but thank you for that. And Rhonda? So I grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Uh, my parents and grandparents were Seventh-day Adventists, and so I um, grew up in a family where uh, the family that prays together stays together. Mm. Uh, we went to church uh, every Sabbath, every Saturday. Um, we're Sabbath keepers. And for us, you know, we also keep uh, the Sabbath from sundown Friday to sundown Sabbath. Uh, mm. So everything stopped uh, on Friday mm. evening. And that was a holy day for me and my family. My parents were very intentional in helping us to develop a relationship with God. So we studied, my brothers and sister and I studied our Sabbath school lessons so we could participate in Sabbath school and got to church. We uh, were very involved in community outreach. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is known for its community outreach. So that's everything from, you know, feeding and clothing those in need. Uh, we have an annual program called Ingathering where we would collect money uh, and then pump that money back into the community for various community initiatives. We have an international mm -hmm. arm now called ADRA. So if there's a disaster in the world, Seventh-day Adventists are going to be on the scene. Um, and we support, you know, those international efforts mm. through our offerings. So I kind of grew up in this church where you um, were taught, there was a song that we were taught when we were young people called Dare to Be a Daniel, Dare to Stand Alone, uh, Dare to Have a Purpose True, and Dare to Make it Known. Mm. Um, and I remember singing that song uh, as a child and wondering what that meant for me. What does it mean to dare to be a Daniel if you have to even stand by yourself? Uh, to dare to have a purpose, to dare to live that purpose no matter where you are. So um, my education, I started in public schools and then I was in Seventh-day Adventist schools from fifth grade through 12th grade and also through college. Uh, and so I was getting an education in how to be a Seventh-day Adventist Christian at home, but then that was also being uh, supplemented by the things I was learning uh, in the classroom. And on top of all of that, I was seeing how my parents were negotiating life. And my dad was a great storyteller, and he used to tell us stories about his upbringing. And one of the stories that really stuck with me is my dad um, went into the military um, right out of high school. And when he came home from the military, he, um, he worked uh, at a, a bottling company in Columbia. And he told me when he got there, uh, he noticed, and this was like in the early, late 50s, early 60s, that the African-American employees were not being treated very well. 
and the supervisors were talking to them mm. um, in very negative ways and using language that was common at the time, uh, the N-word, you know, and other other terms that were very derogatory. And my dad had just come out of the military. And so he said he got there and, you know, and they were treating him like they were treating everybody else. And he was like, oh, wait, uh, wait a minute. I, you know, I, I, I don't want to be called those names and I want to be treated with respect. And he said his boss called him into the office and was like, like, who are you? You know, like, like everybody else doesn't care. Everybody else doesn't say anything. And, you know, and I think my father, through his own sense of self that had developed as a Christian, as well as his military training, uh, that he was able to stand up and say, I demand fair treatment. And his boss treated him well. And so everybody else on the job saw that he was getting different treatment. So they came to my father and said, hey, could you kind of, you know, kind of go go to bat for us? And daddy could have said, hey, y'all need to speak up for yourselves. But he didn't. And my father actually went to the boss and said, hey, instead of sending everybody home after they work 40 hours a week, maybe on Wednesday or Thursday, pay them overtime. Or could you all change the language that you're using when you refer to these black employees? And they did. Mm. They did. Mm. So here's my dad. He's not on the front lines of the civil rights movement, but in his sphere where he was, he was pulling in those Christian principles that he had learned to make a difference, right? To stand up for justice. When other people are to be Mm. oppressed or, or being oppressed, you stand up for them. And so as he's telling me these stories Mm. about him and my grandfather, I could tell you other stories about my granddad doing a similar thing. I saw him saying, as Christians, Rhonda, as Earl B. Robinson and Naomi Robinson's daughter, we expect you to also stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves, don't have the courage to stand up for themselves, if that is the right thing to do then we as Christians have a responsibility to stand in the gap and do that. Mm. Yeah, and that gets to that sense of purpose that you kind of got as a child, that we all have a purpose. Yes, Um, that you are not just here to get a degree and get a job, right, to get married and have a family, that mm. as Christians we have a higher calling on us, no matter who Mm. you are and where you are. That we all, you know, if you're going to say, I am a Christian, then we have a calling on us to be, you know, to make a difference in our world, in our neighborhood, in our schools, you know, in our communities, in our towns, that we cannot sit on the fence. We cannot, if we see something has to be done, we need to be first in line to be uh, those change agents in our, you know, within our our spheres. Wow. So I'm just thinking about kind of growing up in South Carolina, kind of being raised in a in a state in the 1970s and 80s where the history about the state that I got, I had really great teachers, but the textbooks didn't mention much about the trading of enslaved people in Charleston, for instance, where I grew up. Or uh, it seemed to be that that some history was taught, other aspects of history weren't taught. And uh, as I came to Christian faith and was studying history and went into seminary, one thing that really struck me about history or really any kind of academic study is the search for truth. And that's something that as Christians, we're ultimately about what's true, right? And, and, that, and, and that, that was just a really big part of my kind of scholarly journey. And I was wondering how you, you've touched on this a little bit sort of how your purpose or how your faith kind of led you into a direction of scholarship. And, and was it, was it that search for truth? Was it other interests? Like how did your faith begin to connect with your professional life? And what did that look like? And uh, Vernon, you want to start us off there? Well, and I think I wasn't thinking of history uh, as a youngster. I grew up in the Southern Baptist church uh, in a small town, a textile town, which I lived in the country right outside, but called 96 South Carolina. Uh, and uh, I, I saw the worst of segregation. I asked questions. So I was a child of the civil rights movement. 
that is a little little young for it but also the Vietnam War those two things were central in me forming my ideas and I had trouble reconciling people who I knew that were were very very good decent people to me and yet they were so bad on issues of race or even with the Vietnam War and protesters and things and I, I couldn't reconcile that uh, very well and I think that's what led me into thinking about these things. I will say that you know I made it all the way up to a Presbyterian elder at the University of Illinois and I think if I had not retired early to come back south because I want to teach I think I'd have made Episcopalian because I was on my way up <laughs> but uh, I've been stuck for a little while now uh, as a Presbyterian. Uh, but one of the things that's pretty remarkable to me, because Rhonda spoke to this about the songs, is that the Southern Baptists that we know now, the literature they did on race at that time in the 1950s was actually pretty good. And the song that resonated with me all my life, and the, my mother and I sang all the Jesus loves all the children of the world, red, yellow, black, and white. And I question, well, why? Why are these things? I talked about my friend um, uh, Willis Williams' brother, who was a little bit older than I was, but was extraordinarily hardworking and smart like I was, and yet people reached out to a white kid who was from an under-resourced family to do things, we were both hard work, that made it possible for me to go on to graduate school at Princeton and mm -hmm. and other things like and brother who was marching with King, I said a few years older than Martin Luther King Jr., had a choice, you know, to go to jail mm -hmm. for his protest or go to Vietnam. And he went to Vietnam and uh, I mean he survived but had a very difficult time. And these kind of inequality issues were something that very much bothered me. I uh, I came home at my church the first time I came home, even though Furman was not that far from 96, uh, I may as well have been at University of Illinois because I didn't come home. And we came home and then the college students were to do the uh, uh, church service and the, the students wanted me to do the sermon, so I did. And I based it upon my experience of a morning paper out I had from the time I was nine to 18 and I, I turned it into the Good Samaritan story <laughs> using African-Americans mm. um, and about this. And uh, one of the leading deacons got up, called me a communist, and started walking out of the church. And my mother, who never said anything uh, in church and things, um, people are always trying to get her to be the first woman deacon thing, but she had this theory, if, if women did it, men would never do anything in the church, she said, at least that was her excuse. <laughs> but she stood up and said, if my son is a communist, so is Jesus Christ, and so help me. Everybody came and sat back down. But it goes along with the kind of thing that Rhonda said about her dad, seeing the power of someone who will stand up under very unpleasant circumstances if you were in a Southern Baptist church at that time. But I think that's the way that it has, has led me. I have shared this with you before, Otis, my first, not two edited books, but I took one chapter of my dissertation and turned it into a book in my father's house of many mansions, coming from John 14, 2 deliberately, uh, as I tried to compare the household family structure of black and whites, the meaning of community among black and whites, and particularly of religion, how they were similar and how they, how they were different. Uh, and and I was told deliberately that time in the profession, you do not write about religion. That's a taboo subject in the history profession. And it's interesting to see how things change. Now it is the hottest topic in the profession. Mm -hmm. But it was the kind of thing you did not, at least I was told that, both in graduate school and particularly at the University of Illinois, and let alone to announce that you're writing this uh, as a person of faith yourself who tries to follow the historical Jesus to understand these issues as much for myself as, as for others. But um, since then, I think uh, almost everything I have done, because I've 
primarily focused on the idea of family and community and always on race relations. Uh, it goes back to the childhood growing up trying to figure out how people could be, at that time I didn't think of it, complex in terms of living to certain standards and yet creating a distinction to their brothers and sisters. Mm. Uh, as I said, my mother had always told me from day one that everyone was created in God's image and so everybody was the same, if you believe that. And I still believe, although Putin has pushed me, that God is there in, in all of us in some way, and we have to look for that. Um, and I actually try to look for that when I am thinking about readers as to how I can convince them to think about things. Uh, and we can, I've gone on too long. We can talk about that later. That's great, Vernon. Thank you. How about you, Rhonda? Well, as I said, in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, um, there is a heavy emphasis on studying. Mm. So studying the Sabbath school lesson, reading the Bible, you know, they're devotionals. So um, I think about my grandparents, both who were not able to finish um, high school and if you were to have talked to them, you would have thought that they had gone to graduate school. Mm. And I firmly believe uh, it is because of the emphasis on studying on literacy uh, within our church. And for many African-Americans who grew up uh, at the time, like in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s with my grandparents and my parents and didn't have those opportunities to learn, then the church became a place where you could learn to read and you could learn to study and you could learn to be a critical thinker. And so for me, you know, coming up uh, in the 60s, uh, you know, being brought up in that culture, the thing that I learned very early is to ask questions. So I was always asking questions and always getting into trouble because I was, I was the kid, you know, anybody have a question, I'm raising my hand. Um, you learn to be very observant. And so I'm looking around uh, when we left uh, Blakely, Georgia, we left South Carolina when I was two years old, uh, when my dad was having trouble finding work, and we ended up going and living in Blakely, Georgia uh, from the time I was two until I was about 10. And so we left the year that they um, integrated the schools uh, in um, Blakely. But when we got to Atlanta, many of the schools are still segregated. So I'm just like, including some Seventh-day Adventist schools. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. You know, the public schools are being forced to integrate, but there are these loopholes, right? I'm like, how do you get around, um, you know, a federal mandate and not integrate your schools? So I'm just starting to kind of look around at this world. I had grown up mostly in um, an African-American environment, have very, very little contact with white people except um, when I went to the grocery store or when my dad would have to go to the superintendent's house and drop off something, uh, or when we would have these big, you know, global meetings for Adventists and we would gather somewhere, I would see people from all over the world, but I didn't have any white friends. Uh, I didn't have any interactions with white people until I was in ninth grade and went to a predominantly white boarding school, Georgia Cumberland Academy. So even there, you know, it's just like, why, why am I just meeting you all? You know, like I'm, I have all these like, just simple questions about why why are there all these walls of separation? Mm. Um, and then that began to translate into, as I learned more about world history and about the history of slavery, you know, I didn't see um, stories of resistance, right? I didn't hear about people who were escaping or people who were fighting back. And I kept thinking to myself, there have to be stories of, of enslaved people who fought back, right? There have to be stories of rebellions. And so I was kind of on this quest um, to find these stories. Um, I was interested in medicine first, and then I decided to uh, go into journalism. Um, I wanted to write stories. I was gonna be a storyteller. I was gonna work all around the world. And I was gonna report. I was gonna be a foreign correspondent. You know, I had all these big dreams of, of telling stories on the front lines of the action all around the world, even war. I mean, I, I just, that was like my, my childhood, initial childhood dream. And then I was gonna swing back and be a professor after I got all this cool experience as a journalist. 
Um, of course, my life took a different <laughs> direction, uh, which we can talk about later. But that quest for truth and that quest mm. for answers kind of followed mm. me everywhere. And as I became more conscious of the omissions of Black history uh, in my education and the national narratives that I was encountering, um, I began to ask why. Like, why are these stories missing? Uh, as mm. my dad and mom told me stories of their own lives, and I could see this richness in their history that I didn't see reflected, you know, in the textbooks. I didn't re see it reflected in museums I was visiting. I didn't see it reflected in books in the bookstores um, that I was visiting. And I thought, why, why is this, why is there this concerted effort uh, to not tell the history of Black America when I knew, you know, from hearing stories in my family, from visiting family members, uh, that there was this rich history and that what I was experiencing and seeing as a black person in America was not being represented even in my lifetime, right? The story of my own life was misrepresented in the media. And I just, I kept wondering why, like, like why, why aren't people telling the truth about the history of my people and my own experiences as a black woman growing up in America? And so initially I was kind of going down that journalism track and I, I did have an opportunity to teach journalism at Columbia Union College, uh, which is now Washington Adventist University. But I had a dual appointment in the English department and the journalism department and I started teaching introduction to literature and I finally wow. had a chance to start reading about the history of black people. Uh, it was during the 90s when there was this really explosion of texts about African-American history and literature. And I started reading. And before I knew it, I fell in love with African-American literature and decided I was going to change my career in my 30s and go back to graduate school so I could teach African-American literature. Because once I found the truth, I needed to share it. I wanted to mm. be able to... Mm. Um, introduce these stories, um, this literature to students. And mm. so I was willing to put my life on hold uh, and I went back to school, had to get a master's and a PhD. So it was about a 10 year journey before I actually mm. had the opportunity to start teaching at Clemson. But mm. that's what happens, right? When you become a seeker of the truth and you find it, then you want to share it. And for mm. me, you know, that whole curiosity, the questions, that pursuit of truth, that finding the truth, then it's like, I want to be in a position where I can share this mm. and empower students to also ask those questions, mm. right? To seek the truth. And then when you find it, you have a responsibility to share it. Mm. Wow. So it's amazing. There's something sort of innate within us that responds to truth. Isn't it, isn't that interesting that, that we, we kind of hear part of the story and there's something in us that is just driving us to seek and ask questions. And, and when we receive the truth, sometimes it's jarring. Sometimes it's difficult to process. Sometimes it leaves us with more questions or leaves us asking questions about how the, this knowledge came to be. Um, but there's something in us and even more so as Christians of like, hey, this truth, it may not be what I like, but it's accurate. <laughs> and this is what happened. There's this history that I could not stay at Clemson and not talk about. Mm. We walk in the footsteps of enslaved people and sharecroppers and convicted laborers and wage workers whose blood, sweat and tears built this university. And for me, as a Christian who teaches African-American literature, once I knew that history, I had an obligation to document and share that history. Mm. I was wondering, how has your faith played a role and even your research played a role in how do we deal with these racial barriers? Should Christians deal with racial barriers? In what ways? How? Um, how do we how do we as Christians engage um, spaces of racial injustice and spaces of racial barriers and, and begin to bring those barriers down? Vernon, you want to get us started on this one? 
Yeah, I, I can try. That's huge, and we'd spend the whole time on it, uh, Otis. Yeah. Well, first, let me answer directly. Absolutely, that is our Christian calling and our mission, or as you say, our purpose. We need to deal with any injustice. That's what Matthew and Jesus tells us explicitly what we're about, who we're to reach out to, and all those things. But history has been very guilty. Uh, I don't want to let these people off easy in my church and who I grew up with, who I really loved and appreciated because of their attitudes. But they had been taught those attitudes. They didn't come from nowhere. And it is critical to understand why people think as they do. This same textbook on Reconstruction said the Ku Klux Klan saved democracy in South Carolina. But particularly Reconstruction is the most misunderstood and least studied period of history. That's starting to change. But it had been seen and the textbooks that 8th graders and 11th graders were taught was that it was a tragedy because particularly African Americans weren't ready for freedom. And, uh, you know, African American children read these same textbooks in their schools. And, you know, we think that terrorism started with 9-11, but African Americans in the former Confederate states in the American South lived in a terroristic society at least until 1965 and the Voting Rights Act and some of the things that we've seen with George Floyd and others, I think, or Ahmaud Aubrey are, are actually come out of that tradition mm-hmm. and that culture of what whites think they can do. And we have not dealt with those issues at all. So if people deal with the truth, if people look at the truth, and that's what we as Christians have to proclaim, whether it's in our faith or as we look at evidence, and if people are willing to look at evidence, then there can be change and we can make a difference. And one of the things I like about young people, they don't want to be discriminatory. They don't want to have those same views on race that generations ago did. They want to be open to everyone and in some ways sort of, even though they may not be people of faith, practice what we people of faith so believe in. Mm. Now that you know this history and you know there was a concerted effort to keep us apart and to separate us, then what are you going to do? And if you're a Christian, what is your Christian obligation, right? First and foremost, you're going to come at this as a Christian. So you should already be at the front line of saying, right, no barriers. But now you've got this historical evidence to undergird that, you know, calling from God to say that we are all one, that we should all, you know, help each other no matter who we are, where we are in life. Whatever your station does not matter. Mm then what do you do when you put those things together? What kind of citizen do you become when you have evidence to inform this calling that God puts on your life as a Christian? One thing that you both mentioned, which is just really fascinating, is like the ways in which, as you begin to speak truth and write things that are uncomfortable, the way people try to dismiss it. And I think, Vernon, you talked about a couple of times, like being labeled a communist, which in the deep South, there's there's not a worse label to be given. I mean, if you grew up in the deep South, I mean, that that, that is a pejorative statement to a Southern Baptist man um, that's discrediting you to or attempting to discredit you to your community. And 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 I think about the impact of that in Christian culture, which, which has caused us to read more narrowly and we're not reading as broadly maybe. And uh, I remember just kind of being in seminary and a professor of mine saying, listen, uh, there's no square inch of all of creation and all of the history of the world that Jesus does not cry. This is mine. And therefore Christian, you have freedom to go and read and study any area and field and, and search for truth. Um, what, what would you say to, to Christians who may be hesitant to pick up books 
that might challenge some of their thinking. I mean, what would you say uh, to folks in that place? Well, I think that one of the great tragedies of corruption of faith and the church in terms of, uh, of Jesus and what he instructed us and how he lived his life, um, to me, that is one of the, the greatest tragedies because the church, instead of being a place that has often encouraged people to think and listen, even though the church would be the first to say that God gave us minds to think, that God spoke to his people with a covenant uh, through Israel, that the Bible came down, but that God continues to speak to us in many ways. In fact, I learned through both the Vietnam War era and the Civil Rights Movement, and also from studying American history, that you really don't get people to evaluate and come to their own conclusions and reach out of these stereotypical things they have been told and repeated if you say to them, well, you are a racist. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, it's not about guilt or making people feel guilty, I think. At least for me, it's not. It's about enabling them to learn for themselves. And to do that, we've got to engage other people. And there are all kind of ways to do it. I think this is wonderful. Your podcast is a way to do this, Otis. That people, I believe, do want to learn, but they have not been given those opportunities. And certainly in the last few years in our country, we have narrowed down so that instead of, I was there at the creation of this new, wonderful digital world, but instead of making it open up to all people to have access to knowledge, we've gone off into our little corners mm-hmm. and only look for people who think just like us, perhaps look like us, but certainly think like us and reinforce our already preconceived notions. So I think we must, in fact, stand up for truth and for evidence and deal with all evidence. God, or Jesus, is not afraid of evidence. Uh, I'm always amazed at how people are limiting God. I think that Christians must be discerning. Um, I think that um, in this age of, you know, alternate facts and, you know, people who are calling lies truth, that if we say, we're just gonna read everything, we're just gonna like, you know, just try and find truth and just go anywhere. I think that um, the Bible teaches us to be discerning uh, in our search for truth. And so I think we do have to be careful about what we open ourselves up to and who we listen to and what we watch um, because some very well-meaning Christians have ended up um, getting persuaded uh, to believe lies. One one thing that our 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 listeners they're they're in different places. Some folks may have kind of started down a journey of trying to understand these issues in our society. Some folks may be further down the path and are just kind of got weary. Uh, and some people are um, like y'all been in this for a long time and just need some hope. <laughs> what advice? Um, would y'all give to people just in different stages of this journey? Uh, there's things you've learned and your understanding of your faith and what it tells you. What would be some things you'd share with our listeners? Vernon, you want to get us started? Sure. I'd say, and I think both Ron and I have said this over and over, seeking truth is pretty much what we're about. And that's what we seek as Christians as well, the truth. Uh, through Jesus Christ and the Spirit and the Holy Spirit. Uh, like Rhonda, I actually uh, begin every, every morning uh, with scripture reading and prayer. And, you know, I pray for the Holy Spirit as well to guide me. And I, I really believe that uh, God does honor prayer. Uh, and I think that's important, but seeking truth. On a more practical level, particularly for white listeners, it's very important that you read black scholars, 
black novelist as well to understand this perspective. So take this opportunity to read for perspective. Look for other perspectives. That's not going to hurt you in any way. You right. can make up your own mind. I mean, that's you need to learn to think critically. Right. But I think reading is always there and always searching for the truth. I think that if you can get to Washington, D.C. and visit the Smithsonian's African-American Museum of, of History and Culture, um, it tells the story. Um, doesn't start in America. It takes you back to Africa and Europe uh, with the transatlantic slave trade. You know, and, and you go on this journey, right? The first three levels, you're working your way up. And it's one of the broadest and most comprehensive introductions to African-American history that I have seen done and done very well. Um, but that's what happens when you get into public space. You actually meet other people who are seeking mm. to know and to gain knowledge and understanding. And you have these moments where you actually interact mm. with folks and you see that mm. you're not the only one who's, who's mm. seeking to learn. So. Rhonda, getting back to your thread analogy in the tapestry, if I'm trying to pull together all these threads of today, sort of thinking about big lessons that we learn if we're on this journey toward racial healing. And uh, one of the things that we've talked about is uh, evidence and truth and reading and the importance of starting with facts. And um, the other thing that's been brought up is the importance of relationships um, and, and the experiences of others and, and being rooted in understanding not only the experience of people who look like us, but what have been the experience of people who experiences of people who don't look like us. And so trying to experience things more broadly. Another thing that's been brought up, a third kind of thread is how can we advocate? How can we stand up? How can we speak? How can we be engaged in our communities, in our faith communities, in the places we live? I would say this honest search for truth must begin with us, mm. um, because if it's only focused on them, right, the other, um, the people that don't look like us or don't worship like us or, you know, don't live like us, um, then we don't realize that we can also be part of the problem and that there is work that we need to do in our own communities as well as, you know, kind of bridging these gaps between other communities. And then as you begin to learn, like, how do you thread those three things together, right? Those three approaches together, right? Yeah. Uh, the first is to start seeking, but then once you know, you know, like, what are the next steps, how you can take each of those threads and weave them into your own beautiful tapestry? Mm. Right. Um, so you see that tapestry out there, but you also have the opportunity to create one um, for yourself, for your community, for your family. I think it's important that we need to have dialogue. It's, it's difficult sometimes. And sometimes it's difficult to listen to what people believe. But what I was trying to say about the miseducation that's gone on for generations and generations and generations, particularly in the uh, American South is we are not going to convince people by saying you are a racist. Mm -hmm. You've got to understand where they're coming from, why do they believe what they do, and then I think you can engage them. So I, I would encourage us to listen to one another. The dialogue is important, and not just pretend to listen, but try to understand <laughs> where other people are coming from. I think if we're ever going to bring about productive change and move toward particularly racial healing, that we have to understand how people come to feel the way they felt. People are not born that way. God did not create us to discriminate or in some cases hate, just the opposite. That's not the way we were brought into this world to honor God. As we're literature scholars, as we're historians, as we are academics and, and people of faith, what is our ultimate hope? Vernon, you just mentioned the world to come, the, he the new heavens and the new earth. But what might be a hope we can have here on earth in the interim? It's much more important for me if I think about, I want to find favor with God with my work, that that work will be 
something that God would be proud that I did. And then I'll hope that it will find favor with, uh, to do the sexist term, I guess, with man and the way you talk about it, or with people and other readers or others who listen to me. And then that helps me at least focus on what I think is important and trying to, instead of trying to curry favor, mm-hmm. uh, which can be a, a thing that we can do in the academy too often, I think. Mm-hmm. Like my colleague Vernon, first and foremost, my goal is to make sure that I am living the purpose God put on my life. Um, that's the first goal. Um, I know that I was not sent here just to be a professor, just to do my work, just to publish my papers and give presentations and interact with my students and do service on campus and off. The second part of that as Christians is that we have this obligation to our fellow man to make their lives better. Yes, we are occupying until he comes. Mm. And part of occupying for Christians is to be a blessing to others. Mm. Thank you, Dr. Thomas. I want to thank you for your time on this podcast. I think what you've shared today is going to have a huge impact. And I'm just very thankful for both of you as colleagues. But I'm also very thankful for the examples that you set for me and for so many others in our community. And so I want you both to know what a great honor this is today to have you on. And thank you so much for what you shared today with our audience. Thank you, Otis, and what an honor it is to be here with my colleague and someone I admire so much and to see what a difference she has made and continues to make. That's Uh, right. I feel very honored and and no one I respect more than you, Otis, for the life you live and have lived and continue to as an example as a Christian scholar. As I said again, I just feel so fortunate that you're here at Clemson. Answer to prayers. Thank you, Vernon. Yeah, it's an honor to be here with both of you um, and to know that there are Christian scholars among us, uh, including you, uh, who understand um, the purpose that we have in in public space, in public Mm. higher education institutions, and that we have an opportunity to to live our calling together. Mm. A purpose that prevails. Thank y'all so much. A purpose that prevails. Thank y'all so much. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Purpose That Prevails. If you've made it this far, I hope this means this conversation was thought-provoking and lights your path on this walk of faith we're all on together. A reminder, please spread the word about the show to your church community, your family, your friends. Every bit helps. If you would be so kind to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. It's been a pleasure for me to host the show and spend this time with you. My name is Otis Pickett. Until next time, God bless. Next Chapter Podcasts.